Hi, and welcome to the Rostrum Agency Managing Reputational Risk podcast with me, Grant Bather. In this series of podcasts, I'll be discussing crisis and reputation management from a public relations and media perspective. I'll take a look at the definition of a crisis, what it feels like to be engulfed in a media storm, the role of a crisis communications team, and what steps businesses and individuals can take to minimise media exposure around reputational risk. Each episode, I'll be joined by guests who will give their unique insight into managing reputational risk. And of course, I'll give my take from a PR perspective. Having started my career as a journalist before becoming a company spokesperson and PR professional, I've seen all angles of a crisis. So join me and my guests as we delve into the issues that play into managing reputational risk. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ben Nichols. Ben is a seasoned sports PR professional who has worked across a number of sporting events around the globe, including tennis tours and Commonwealth Games. He's also been tasked with providing PR support and consultancy across a variety of hot topics in sport, perhaps most notably with the World Anti-Doping Agency. Thanks for joining me today, Ben. Well, Grant, thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me on. So, Ben, we'll get straight into it. How would you define a crisis? In my view, it's it's essentially an unstable time or state of affairs that's going to result in a change of some form. So um, it's an issue, I think, that's probably reached a critical stage in its journey and it's going to one way or another require reaction. Yeah, I think that much is a given. But, you know, when something has reached a tipping point, something needs to change. And that, in my view, is is how you define a crisis. The past few years have seen a number of reputational issues in sport, some new, such as live golf some old such as doping in sport so where do you want to start i'll start just with my first foray into crisis communications meets sport because some people you know generally will see sport as a positive happy thing uh, not viewing it as uh, something that's going to have too many crises you know the saying it's only sport comes to mind any sector that's become a business as it were and sport certainly has become a business um, can now face crises. And I think particularly in this age, you know, 24-hour news cycles, social media, scrutiny on absolutely everything means that issues, you know, quickly become crises, quickly develop often into things which you and I down the pub might not see as a crisis, but the media will certainly paint it as one. So there's different, I think, definitions on what, what really is a crisis and what where perspective gets lost. But um, to answer your question, I... Back in 2009, I was working um, working in Dubai as head press officer for the Dubai Tennis Championships, uh, which was an ATP and WTA, um, so men's and women's tennis tour, recognised tournament. One of the one of the best tournaments on the tour, I think, in my point of view. And we had some of the, the best players. There was a lot of enjoyment that went with that, and uh, I was thrown in um, thrown in the deep end really when we had a um, yeah a matter where sort of geopolitics clashed with sport and one of the players whose name was Shahar Peer, a female player, had qualified for the event, was in the main draw for the women's week of the event. Long story short, we learned that she wasn't able to board the plane because she didn't have the correct visa. In other words, um, wasn't permitted to come to the UAE as an Israeli citizen. That, of course, um, was very much politics meets sport, unavoidably so. Very tricky situation. We tried to handle it in the best way possible. But as a young press officer, this was something where I had to quickly cut my teeth on a very, um, very heavy issue. And there were, there was press at the time calling, you know, some of the players, calling for a boycott for the following year, calling for um, the tournament to be stripped of its status. Um, There was all sorts going on. And really, we had to try and, I guess, keep 
a sense of calmness, keep the show on the road for that year, not comment in a way that would be inappropriate um, and above our station, and really just confirm what the rules were for the tournament. So we had to adhere to that. It was a tricky situation. And as it happened next year, there was, you know, there was a, a, a silver lining the next year. She was admitted to the to the country. So I think I think she had a, a special entry requirement or something was granted to her for the next year when she qualified again. Um, and we just had to manage it there because she was a one of the top players who didn't play on the centre court. And the reason was, you know, there, were, there was talk that there might have been protests from local fans given the tension between the countries. So she was playing on an outside court, heavy security. It was a very unique situation, but she could play. We, I guess, learned the lesson of ensuring all players could come and play in the tournament if they if they qualified. Um, and the the tournament still exists to this day. So it's not because of my communication skills. I, I'm not going to be that high and mighty about it, but certainly um, we learned our lesson of, of how to grapple with a political um, issue in sport. And that was that was my first foray into it. And I, I you know I got my um, kind of got a taste of it then, and uh, in a strange sort of way, enjoyed dealing with those meteor issues. That politics versus sport is is playing out now. You've got you know the the ownership of Newcastle United. You've got the the Liverpool golf so how do you balance those political issues versus what's going on in the sporting world yeah it's a good question i think the issues we're seeing today um yeah i think live golf is a perfect example now the narrative amongst the the mainstream media is pretty adamant that in my view on the pga side of things as the established tour as a recognized liked tour um that has always had always had the main yeah the, the most popular tour and the most prestigious tour in golf and and with all respect to the european tour it's been playing i guess second in command to that now the issue i think certainly comes from okay where is the backing coming from for live golf and that creates in my view it creates a, a narrative that's distorted a little unfairly to live golf in my in my view we're now facing a situation where yes a disruptor has come in looking at it from a free market point of view as far as I can see, they're not saying you should only play Live Golf's tour. They're saying the, the golfers should have the choice. And if they want to play PGA only, fine. If they want to come to us, and by the way, we're paying a lot of money, fine. I think people, commentators, the media, they don't like the fact that um, it's not that it's a disruptor, but it's. Um, I think it's the financials behind it and certainly the fact it's it's coming from Saudi. Look at it from a product point of view. It's it's, you know, they're pitching themselves as an exciting new way of doing things, shaking up the sport, the, the shotgun starts. It's not all about the money. And trust me on this, I think there's golfers there who think actually for the good of the sport, could this take it in a different direction, help it bring in new new fans in the future? I think there is that element. And I think unfairly, um, they're probably not getting their, their airtime and hearing that. At the moment, there's a battle going on clearly for the heart and soul of golf. Some players are staying with PGA, some, um, you know, being billed as the loyalists, some are going elsewhere. But I do think it will settle down over time. Whether there's a merger eventually, that would seem seem sort of one narrative. Um, but I think by and large, if you take that, yes, you can see it as a crisis. But actually, why should it be a crisis that a competitor comes in? In other industries, we take competition. Why? Because sport has evolved differently. Should there be a, a monopoly, as it were, or a duopoly um, on the sport when others want to have a different product like live golf so i'm certainly not sitting here defending live golf wholeheartedly i think they've got a lot to do but i do think there should be choice you know the golfers are there to play golf definitely a challenge for the players because you know they're, they're going to get asked a question around the funding and are you only doing it for the the millions of dollars and however much they say no it's about bringing in the extra fans and the the entertainment factor which you know as for other sports has, has been the case cricket and snooker 
come to mind you know they've had to adapt and bring in new formats so as you say why why wouldn't golf be the same but it's that it's where the funding's from the the question is it is and and yeah to, to come back to your question about the communications point of view have they have they done it perfectly with the players being you know briefed but perfectly what to say i mean some of it has sounded a bit scripted some of it um you know you've seen genuine answers given some have just been honest and said look i want to look after my family i.e i want to go where the best paycheck is yeah at least they're honest i mean i think as well we're 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 kind of holding sportsmen and women on a higher pedestal than some we do in society they're not yes they're role models um but they're not necessarily all going to be the you know the the, the most virtuous moralistic individuals ever what advice would you give to those players? Um, I, I think, I mean, some of them have tackled it. It hasn't been a popular answer, but um, because, I, again, I think some journalists are probably looking to to dig and say it is their responsibility who, who their paymaster is. But actually, you know, when, they, when you hear some of the golfers answering, they're here to play golf, they're concentrating on the course, the field they're playing against, an exciting new product, rather than the country where the money is coming from. And I don't think they can carry the world's geopolitical issues on their shoulders I think that is a, a unreasonable expectation so if I was a golfer I think I'd be asking those <laughs> asking the questions to have a bit of perspective about what they're there to do and not take a political view on it And moving on to a completely different subject around the uh, the doping um, and, and Wilder, if you could kind of give me a, a bit, bit of your background there, that'd be really helpful. I came into Wada back in 2013. I thought then it was a fascinating time. The, the doping topic, I think, you know, interests many because there is that crisis element. There's that sort of scandal, scandalous element of, of cheating in sport that people are fascinated by. And I joined when it was just after the, uh, the Lance Armstrong mayor culpa to Oprah Winfrey. So it was just at the tail end of when the US Anti-Doping Agency put out their sort of bombshell report on, on uh, I guess, the US postal team's um, yeah. doping program, which was the leader of which was Lance Armstrong. So, of course, he was the news. Now, I thought that was lively at the time. Um, fast forward a couple of years and, and the issue, as these things do, moved on swiftly to... Um, well, troubles in athletics. You'll remember the the issues that surrounded the, the then IAAF and their governance and corruption issues with the, the previous president to, before Sebco got involved, and the and the issues that he had to deal with when he became president as a as a kind of hangover from then. Um, and then that moved into um, the, the the allegations of distortion surrounding doping, and that's when things really turned. We were dealing with um, initially a German television documentaries. Um, allegations surrounding doping in Russia and the bribing and um, and kind of manipulation of the system surrounding the anti-doping agency, etc. Um, and when that came out, I remember you know talk about dealing with a crisis. We knew that documentary was coming out. When the documentary came out, from Wada's point of view, we have to state that these are allegations from the media. We take them very seriously. Um, and we need to look into them because we can't react on, you know, and cite as true or false um, allegations. Obviously, we have to look into them. We have to be neutral. And we have, you know, well, we, we then had a, a, an early days investigations team. It's now a department at WADA. So it's really, really grown and gone good guns since then because investigations has become a big part of anti-doping, not just 
blood and urine testing is now about circumstantial evidence. It's about testimonies. It's, you know, it's um, it's changed how you can pull together a doping case. So WADA carried out an investigation. It was called later called the, the Pound Investigation. So WADA's founding president, uh, a very well-known Canadian sports sports law and administrator called Dick Pound, had um, set up a chair of the investigation and uh, in 2015 announced the findings in, in Geneva. And I was... Um, I guess, you know, fortunate to be chairing that press conference. It's one of those moments in your career where you think this is a, you know, incredible sort of coincidence in a way that I'm, I found myself here in front of the media, uh, BBC World News covering this as their main story. So that was when we officially released, I guess, the the findings to that investigation. And absolutely, it showed that there was a systematic doping regime in in Russian athletics, that the authorities there were involved. um, And it was a very heavy issue to deal with. And that was, you know, that was goes beyond sport that's that's you know absolutely that's politics intertwined and then it became even even wider spread and it was then we had athletes at the time um who were involved with wilder saying okay if this is happening in athletics in russia we believe this this is uh, this is present in other sports so we want wilder to look into this and that became an even bigger issue uh from a crisis point of view absolutely it tested me it tested others in our department um we had to and in the company as a whole we had to react quickly to journalists um questions where we couldn't react um and comment and a lot of the time in doping we couldn't comment because it's pending investigations that's the legal process and that's um expected but we had to give quick responses to say we will look into this or this matter is being investigated or even if it's holding answers that's really interesting those steps that you take are steps that I advise any clients or any companies that, that come to me around reputation management. It's be transparent, be open, give the details that you know. And if you don't know the details, basically say to the journalist, we're looking into this. We'll come back to you when we when we can. But regularly updating them. So, you know, the journalist knows basically you're, they are always top of your list. Absolutely. And, you know, I was under no illusions. I was the, I was the point of cause, the messenger, you know, to, to, to get that to journalists and the, the window to the world, as it were, in terms of there would be investigations at WADA, there'd be confidential discussions, there would be um, work going on. But until that work had been completed, um, you know, we're in no position to comment and speculate on these things as the watchdog. That's the last thing you should be doing. That's for others in the, <laughs> to, to, to be doing, certainly not for the watchdog. So we had to be, you know, really careful with the and respect the process and at the same time have that balancing act with the fact you're dealing with a 24-hour news cycle and pretty ravenous journalists who, who want to get things out and deadline quickly so yeah my relationship with journalists I, I like to think was a good one and I, it was about responding swiftly just letting them know we're not ignoring because no, we're not there to ignore we're there to, to essentially follow the rules exactly yeah and it, what advice would you give to any comms professional who has to handle uh, a sudden influx of media inquiries and particularly handling a a press conference of such magnitude? Obvious one, where possible, plan, and we certainly did have crisis communications plans, whether it's WADA or other places, Commonwealth Games, etc. I think they're good in theory. I think they're good to have in the back of your mind of how how to prepare and you can dig out when you do have a a real-life crisis. That said, when it happens, it's always a different scenario. So you can have the same steps in place, but you've got to use human intuition and and think on your feet and a, yeah. a certain amount of common sense comes in. And that's where I think experience just trumps everything. There's a famous phrase that springs to mind from Mike Tyson is everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. That's absolutely right. So you can be digging out the, um, the you know, the, the, the comms plan from the bottom of your filing cabinet, but actually it's adrenaline kicks in. Um, pull the experience you need around you. I think have as much humility as you need to, to admit, okay, I don't think I, 
I, I know enough to respond to this, but who who can help here? Let's pull in all the talent. I think it's preparing as much as possible for the process. I think it's also when when a crisis does hit, when an issue does hit, people want, especially in this day and age, as I've, as I've touched on, people want answers quickly, um, even if something's a complicated issue. And that's where I think Dopen was difficult because you had to the public a sort of scandalous news issue to, to the watchdog and others involved in anti-doping, this is a very technical, very complicated scientific issue that you've really got to be sure about. You know, you're giving facts across. So it's for others to interpret and, and sensationalize. It's for you to provide pretty technical, often dry information. So there's that slight juxtaposition. And that was where, I guess, being a spokesperson or a media relations guy, you've got to balance, you know, speaking to the people, as it were, with respecting the topic and not dumbing it down. But I think it's giving statements as quickly as you can and not forgetting you're speaking to the public, but you're also at an organisation like WADA or the Commonwealth Games Federation or others, you're speaking to other audiences, you're speaking to your members, so the national sports federations, the anti-doping agencies, the governments. So making sure your members and those affiliated with you are getting the message and not hearing it through a news article. Um, and that's really important, I think, from a relationship point of view. We, none of us working for a company like to hear something through the press. We want to ensure the internal communications is good. It's easy to forget that in the heat of the moment of, okay, there's a journalist harassing me here, but actually what you need to do is make sure your own people are on, on side because you've got to keep them in the loop. They've got their own people to communicate to as well. So um, they're your allies in this and they've got to um, be across things as much as people externally. Yeah, fantastic point is that similar when I speak to clients and, and obviously none of my clients are, are, are sports related, but it's you know, keeping people in the loop, as you said, making sure the internal audience is respected. You don't want them to find out by turning on the TV that they've been made redundant or there's this big announcement. So it's and it's something that you know some firms forget or it's we've got to get something out to the media straight away we've got to do this and go but what about all these other people like you said the the governing bodies the the government the trade associations they all need to be considered that's why i think something like a crisis communications plan having those processes and documents in place at least it can serve as a bit of a checklist and go okay staff tick you know trade associations tick government bodies tick you know law enforcement tick it's having that in place and and that being flexible enough to move depending on the crisis and i think in a way if you take anti-doping again i know we're talking a lot about that but it's a great case study because often it would be a doping case of an athlete that's there's been something in the media speculation but when the process is ongoing until an announcement has been made by the body that's responsible for that athlete um there's a process at play so you know we need to at WADA, we need to be checking, checking with the science department, checking with the legal department, checking, you know, it's essentially an organization of different talents and different um, different perspectives to, to tackle a big issue in sports. So you have to go and get the information from the experts within the company. Your job to um, to articulate it, but it has to be, you don't have the, you know, the information at your fingertips because it because it is so detailed. Moving on now from from WADA and and doping, the last few years have seen COVID, the Russian invasion of of Ukraine. How has that played its way into sport and how how do you think the sport response has has been? For example, you know, Wimbledon becoming a non-ranking event is just one that springs to mind. There's a lot going on and no one can have um, planned for the pandemic from a sports communications point of view, really, Uh, you know, much ahead of time. Um, we're all learning on the job, I think. Um, I think first to take the Russian, um, you know, the war with Ukraine, it's the situation 
I mean, I look at it as actually, you know, the doping issue for us was a huge, you know, bombshell at the time. Obviously, then the, the Russian ban in place for sports since that's also, you know, become a big, big issue because it's um, about a war. But I think at the time, what it raised raised the topic for me. It brought back, okay, during the doping scandal, there was a whole lot of, I guess, wrangling across the the sports industry about. Um, whether Russia had been faced the sanction it should have done at the time, whether there was enough of a ban in place. So there was a whole lot of sort of discussions at play as to whether the right sanction had been put in place for the doping issue. Now, of course, when the war broke out, more severe sanctions were um, were in place. And you take Wimbledon, for example. Look, again, that's we talk about free choice. That is there um, as the Grand Slam. They were able to take that take that decision and it it jarred with the the tour, obviously, and hence the ranking points being being stripped. But I think that is their decision to take. Um, everyone is going to have a view on that. But actually, if they want to take a position and make a make a point and take a stance on it, absolutely, that's their that's their decision to take, and they should be people can judge them on it. But I think they, um, in terms of when, whether they should be able to take that decision, yes, in my point of view, they should um, because they're thinking about how does that align with the national government policy. Um, in place in the UK at the time, the ranking points point point of view, I I, I don't buy that. I, I I subscribe to the view that ranking points or no ranking points, this is Wimbledon. It's not an exhibition. It's yes, it was perhaps a one-off year in that in that regard. I can't imagine next year whether the situation will be the same. I don't want to predict that. But um, but this is not an exhibition. Those players winning matches and winning, if, certainly if they won Wimbledon. They're not seeing that as a um, you know an exhibition sort of special year. They they won Wimbledon, so you know ranking points is a slight side issue, I think, when it comes to the gravitas of the, you know the top tennis tournament in the world um, and a one-off year. That's what I would say. Fantastic. And the um, Novak Djokovic in the Australian Open again. I guess that is the the political standpoint, which is then filtering down into sport. The takeaway I have from that was how did it even get to that stage again i think um the tournament has a right to to put in place its rules i mean that's that's what it says and I, that's that's what they did and that's the standpoint they took with covid and i agree i think that's they they took a decision that they were allowed to take and i, I back them for that and if the player um hasn't been vaccinated and needs to be to compete so be it that's that's the way the cookie crumbles no one is bigger than um than the sport itself and the sport at that time in Australia, um, and under the under the power of the Tennis Australia and the authorities there, the government there, and um, they took that decision. And um, and who can question that really? If you want to play, abide by the rules. Yeah, that was the issue, and and we move on. <laughs> it, it certainly does. It sounds like you've had a, an interesting career and a and a lot that um, yeah you've been able to uh, help us with as part of this conversation. I've got one final question for you, really, and that is. Are there any steps that you think communications professionals um, can take to help to mitigate and minimise the exposure of their clients, whether that be people or organisations, to reputational issues and reputational events? I think general rules, yeah, anticipate and always have a plan, have something writing, have something you can lean on in those times when everything is hitting the fan, let's say. <laughs> um, um, you know, respond immediately, as I said, when, you, when you've got a, a responsibility, a duty to respond to media or whoever it is, um, you're not hiding behind anything, just respond, even if it's to say, cannot comment to this stage, we'll get back to you as soon as possible. I know that sounds bland, but if I'm a journalist, that is better than someone not, not replying to an email. Uh, you know, that's courtesy in a way. 
Um, don't over talk. Less is more. You don't want to be as much as you're trying to be helpful. And some of us, we, we've got a tendency to, to talk and try and be friendly, but actually, no, you just got to get the right information across. And if it's succinct, so be it. Just, just deliver what you need to at that point in time. Tell the truth, I think, needless to say. Um, you know, accept responsibility, be, be open, be honest. And I think where possible, you want to step, stop rumors and misinformation. So sometimes you have to step in if there's a narrative being put out there that's um, that's not accurate. And that might be put out there because of an absence of information, because you're not able to give them what they want in the public domain. But actually, then perhaps it's your duty to step in and say, that's we, what we can say is that is incorrect. Um, so there's a, definitely a lot of management to be done um, in terms of um, how it plays out. Fantastic. Well, it's been a Brilliant conversation. Loved every minute. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Grant. Really enjoyed it too. My thanks again to Ben and join us next time for more on managing reputational risk. This is a Rostrum Agency production, produced, mixed and edited by Rostrum. Rostrum is a full-service communications agency offering PR, content and influencer marketing, social media, training, design and much more. Rostrum is among the UK's top 5 B2B agencies and a PR Week top 100 agency, specialising in financial services, professional services, consumer and corporate campaigns as well as crisis management, content marketing and social media. Rostrum creates campaigns and content to help clients punch above their weight. Rostrum measures everything it does, delivering exceptional value for clients' budgets. To find out more, search rostrum.agency.